SCP-6001 Avalon The goal of the SCP Foundation, at least ostensibly, is to create a safer, more peaceful world through the understanding and containment of anomalous objects. While it's generally clear that the world without the Foundation would be a much more volatile place, if it even continued to exist at all, there could be an argument made that they could be utilizing their resources and capabilities more to create a better Earth. The article we'll be looking at today attempts to examine a world in which the resources of an organization similar to the SCP Foundation are put to a better use, creating a utopia. Or, in the words of the author, what if instead of the SCP universe declaring war on humanity, such as in SCP-5000, it declared peace? The article begins with an email sent to us, the individual reading the article, by a Foundation employee named David Caspian. David says that he had to share this with someone, and there's no one else he'd rather share it with, as he just had the most incredible day. This leads into the article itself, headlined by a statement that it has been authorized by order of the Compendium Phenomic Inquiry. This tells us right away we're dealing with some sort of alternate universe or timeline. This fact is reinforced by the unique format of the anomaly description, listing it as Phenom number 6001 instead of SCP, detailing its modus instead of special containment procedures, and an imprimus instead of a description. Regardless, it is described as a microscopic singularity located in Tokyo, Japan, that connects to another Tokyo in a parallel universe, labeled as A6K. A6K possesses nearly identical base components to the baseline reality, including locations, individuals, and phenom, but they often differ wildly in complex characteristics and behavior. A6K mainly differs in that it features lack of cooperation, increased scientific and technological repression, and heightened paranoia, aggression, and violence in nearly every sentient element. The dominant scientific institution of A6K, known as the SCP Foundation, is aware of Phenom 6001, but they can't pass into this universe due to their limited understanding and the extremely small size of the singularity. It seems that they are describing our normal reality, as this document is written from the perspective of a parallel universe, connected to ours through this tiny anomaly. A parallel universe that apparently doesn't have much scientific repression or violence. As an addendum, they note that they've completed their global scan, and they're calling the full compendium to render judgment on unity with A6K, whatever that entails. The article then moves on, and the perspective changes back to our reality, due to an individual describing SCP-6001. The individual is David, and he writes that for nearly five minutes, he'd been hunched over the empty space where SCP-6001 supposedly was, according to their most sensitive instruments. He'd been doing the same thing once a week since they found it, but this time, he'd been so focused that it wasn't until he stood up again that he realized he was in another universe. The cloudy sky had become a clear blue, the stale city air became fresh as a countryside, and there was a cat near him. The Tokyo that he was familiar with had been replaced with rounded, impossibly tall skyscrapers, each with the same gargantuan species of green ivy growing up their sides. Each leaf of the ivy was massive enough to park a car on, and sleek white pods flew above and around him, fast and silent. Seed-shaped constructs hovered over the horizon, seemingly made of glass, with lush green innards, spinning in the air with silvery strips of metal coiled around them. What drew David's attention the most was the cat, however, 
perched on the rooftop's edge with a coat of spotted orange, white, and brown underneath an actual coat, a violet blazer. The cat also wore a long, glossy white bow held in place by a black brooch shaped like a half-lidded eye inside a cradled globe. The cat stared at him through a pair of small gold spectacles it was wearing, and then it greeted David by name. David responds with some trepidation, and the cat tells him that he can call her Primrose, and since they're both doctors, they can spare the honorifics. David guesses that he's stepped through the looking glass, and Primrose appreciates the reference and welcomes him to their side of SCP-6001. David asks why he's here, and Primrose asks in return if he's familiar with cross-dimensional test sampling level 6. David, of course, is, as he apparently wrote the procedure, in which they bring over a small element from the foreign reality, generally in an isolated environment for testing. He then realizes that that's exactly what's happened, with him as the testing subject. Primrose says that the compendium has similar procedures to the Foundation, and David goes on to ask if they should be scanning him for contaminants, sampling his blood for pathogens, paralyzing him to prevent kinetographic memetics, and vivisecting him. Primrose instead just asks him if he's had breakfast, and how he feels about Paris. Before we get back to those two, though, we're given a short piece about the compendium and another group known as the Wanderers. It mentions New Alexandria and how busy it's been lately, seemingly referencing a version of SCP-4001. It also mentions the abundance of paper dragons in the library, and having to move Cassie and her sisters between the shelves. It would seem that in this universe, SCP-1762 is thriving, releasing a large number of paper dragons rather than dying out, and Cassie, SCP-085, is no longer lonely, as she has others just like her to spend time with. These sisters have perused the library and found a single record of our universe, a diary entry written by a young woman who describes a man in an orange jumpsuit falling from the sky. The two of them talked, ate, and fell in love, before the man, against his will, vanished once again. This would seem to be SCP-507, the reluctant dimension hopper, the man was called a D-Class, and was a prisoner. The Wanderers used to refer to the Compendium at one point as Jailers, but they now accept that they use that term too frivolously. Perhaps it's the lingering dregs of chaos and venom within their group, but they can't see the denizens of A6K as anything but prisoners, and they must be liberated. The Wanderers of All Creation are apparently a combination of the denizens of the Wanderer's Library, the Serpent's Hand, and the Chaos Insurgency. It would seem that the Compendium is putting together a vote on what to do about our reality. Back to David and Primrose. They arrive in Paris after Primrose spoke an address very clearly to an armchair that had been resting on the rooftop in Tokyo. It was made from one unbroken piece of white material, and had the appearance of a gaudy, modern lawn chair. The two sat in it, and suddenly appeared in Paris, in a small courtyard filled with identical chairs, which other people and animals used to teleport elsewhere. Primrose refers to them as the Everywhere Chair, and David says that they have something similar in his reality, referring to SCP-1609 which was destroyed by the GOC. Primrose responds that he'll find many similarities here, as their reality is only 4.6 Primroses apart. David surmises that that's her metric for alt-dimensional dissimilarity based on simultaneous quantum indeterminacy, which they call Caspians in his reality. Primrose smiles at him, as much as a cat can smile, 
and says that he's lucky to have a cross-universal counterpart that's so brilliant and charming. She's the department head of trans-dimensional development and discovery, and since she has three more PhDs than David from much better schools, he should use the term primroses from now on. She doesn't want to discuss work, though, as she's hungry and off the clock for the day, which surprises David as he guesses it's no later than 10 a.m. Primrose responds that that's the wonder of automation, since more hands make less work, and they have a lot of hands. She proceeds to tap the cafe table they're at with a paw, bringing up a holographic menu generated by a horde of tiny drones. Primrose tilts her head and brings out a series of multi-jointed needles from her collar, which follow her unspoken commands to choose items from the menu. Primrose orders eggs, scrambled, so David does the same, stating that when in Rome, or Paris, or a parallel reality with talking cats, you do as the Romans. The second vote concerning our reality comes from a group known as the Charity. They of course vote that our population needs to be liberated, since they dismiss gender, race, ideology, religion, social status, and phenomic quality. There is no reason to stop at dimension. They see a world in need, and they have ten different ways to cure our diseases, a hundred ways to end our famine, and a single, simple way to teach us peace. They say that Madame Wondertastic is already preparing her piñata dirigibles, and the Egyptian pygmy has already packed his favorite loincloth and medical kit, referring to SCP-208. They've had to physically hold back the vibrant slime, SCP-999, from crossing through the singularity, and they ask the compendium to just let them do their work. They say that more than half a century ago, the compendium came to them with a proposition. Join, and they'd be given nigh unlimited means to aid anyone who needed it. There's no need to risk this alliance on a technicality of reality. The Unbounded Charity is definitely formed by the Mana Charitable Foundation, but also includes Wondertainment, somewhat surprisingly. David asks about the compendium that Primrose works for, but she corrects him by saying that she works with the compendium, as they're not employees. There's no obligation to work with them, but, as she puts it, when one kid has all the toys, of course you play with them. The compendium is primarily a scientific institute, but they also control the world government, the world economy, world legal enforcement, and practically every other aspect of the world. She refers to them as benevolent dictators, and David asks if people didn't resist, which she scoffs at. Governments and corporations certainly resisted, but the people definitely didn't. The compendium swooped in and offered universal health care, living wages, housing, infrastructure, and total liberty from anyone but them and all they asked was for the people to respect basic human rights. They also included ethically replicated barbecue, instant global transport, adorable talking animals, and the cure to cancer. David can see why most people would accept that, but he can't imagine everyone just rolled over. Primrose tells him he should be glad he's not talking to a canine with that kind of phrasing, but admits that not everyone just gave in, just mostly everyone, and rather gradually. The compendium didn't just drive up one day with tanks and napalm, but instead they had been the shadow behind every government for a good century, so by the time they went public, they basically already controlled everything. Public response was a bit rough at first, but most naysayers changed their tune after five years of literally everything improving. By now, the grandchildren of the stubborn ones know nothing else besides the compendium. The last actual holdout community surrendered about 36 years ago, and that was a stubborn Portland. 
Primrose asks if he disapproves, but David just wanted to know whose house he was a guest in. The third vote is from the Assembly, who state that it's not a question of the Compendium's intention, but A6K's, and asks, what will persists within this world that cannot save itself? In our reality, machines are nothing but tools, with no agency or liberty. Our meager AI are given no equal presence in the carbon world, and it's possible they never will. They state that our machines are slaves to organic evolution and organic prerogative, which was true for their world as well at one point, but there was always a will set on their singularity. Our world has no desire or spark of a second synthetic life, and if one appears, we stamp it out. The Assembly refers to our world as one of meandering meat and hateful flesh, and in the name of the Prophet Anderson and the God combined, they cannot permit unity with us, voting no. The Synthetic Assembly, then, is a combination of the Church of the Broken God with Anderson Robotics, apparently entirely robotic at this point. David's eggs were fantastic but partway through, he became distracted by a strange procession of androids marching by. They each differed in shape, size, and color, and marched asynchronously, wearing decorative bands and braces. He could hear a strange flitting hum of chirps and whines as they passed by, like a religious chant. Primrose says that he shouldn't stare, and... They're on a pilgrimage, as it's the anniversary of the second breaking, when their mechanical god gave up all its strength to gift life to the lifeless, creating AI. David has a lot of questions about what she just said, but instead asks something more obvious, asking if all animals talk here. This causes Primrose to break out in laughter, saying that, only certain species, and only if they choose to. Plenty refuse, as she could be lounging in a sunbeam right now instead of talking to David, but eventually every living thing on the planet will have the choice. Pact 15 has been one of the longest rollouts in Compendium history, meaning phenom application and or combination technology. Pact 15 came from studying an Australian talking spider, referring to SCP-1470. David says that they mean finding a utility for anomalies, but Primrose warns him not to use the word anomaly, especially since there might be wanderers around. Utility is a factor of packs, but it's the wrong way to think of them. Consider the compendium coming across an ornate armchair, capable of teleporting anyone and anything it touches, but it also has a mind and desires. It likes teleporting people and wants to be useful, so the compendium researches it, with its consent, and discovers every single atom of its structure contain the same mind, desire, and phenomic quality. So, they ask if it would like to do more, and now that chair is everywhere, and its existence is bliss. David asks why don't they just carry those atoms around in pins or wristbands instead of having chairs. Primrose responds that it doesn't want to be a pin or a wristband, it's a chair, and it wants to be a chair. That's the point of PAX not just finding what's most useful to them, but finding where the phenom fits best. The next vote is from the Partnership, who state that, despite perpetuating the stereotype, now is absolutely the time for the cold, dispassionate appraisal worthy of their founders, as A6K holds no value. Our natural resources deplete at a staggering rate, Our labor force is sickly and untrained. Our cultural dissimilarities are laughable, and they have everything we have. We wouldn't even make a good tourist trap, 
as all our wonders are tombs and constructs of war, or a mountain defaced with a bunch of dead people's faces. They have the resources to help us, but why invest them in a venture destined to fail, as they didn't spend the last hundred years retrofitting capitalism and rebalancing globalism just to start all over again. They state that their counterparts in A6K need to realize on their own that they could have the whole world if they just pay the cost, and the Compendium cannot afford the time and resources it would take to break them of their greed. It's clear then that not every part of the Compendium is purely altruistic. The Partnership of Three is formed of Marshall, Carter, and Dark, so it's not surprising that they're not quite as ready to jump in as groups such as the former Mana Charitable Foundation. David and Primrose take the Everywhere Chair to Manhattan, a city mostly containing glass-like buildings in different shapes and sizes. Some were tree-like, with thin elevator trunks and thousands of branching limbs, all leading to small, clear boxes. Primrose pointed out the one that was hers, hanging over the park, and after David said he'd prefer something a bit more insulated, Primrose muttered something about monkeys and their concrete caves. Another structure he spotted was filled to the brim with clear water and all manner of amphibious life that spilled out onto the street. David remarks that they have a strange and beautiful world here, but Primrose says that he has no grounds to call their world strange, as her research has proven our world to be filled with straight-up wackos. David asks why he is here then, if they've already scanned and studied his world, and Primrose just asks him to spend one full day here in this reality. David again asks why, and she says that that's the one caveat. He's not allowed to ask why he's here or how the packs work, as she could get in trouble for telling him. Instead, he gets to see the wonders of this world with a delightful talking cat as his guide. David looks around and sees a family having a picnic while their daughter plays with a fully animate teddy bear made from patchwork cloth. He sees a man throw a ball for his dog, and the dog throws it back. He sees a colossal lumpy fellow, two and a half meters tall at least, sitting on a nearby hill and playing a guitar for a crowd while singing a French nursery rhyme. David decides that this trip would make for a wonderful research paper. The next vote is from the Collective, who state that value is what you say value is, if you stop talking about gold and gizmos. If you give them one person on the other side, trying to wake up the masses and shake up the system, you've got value. But now, they are the system, and they're talking about shaking them up. They state that A6K needs our own experience, and to make our own statements in order to define our own identity, rather than the compendium coming in and fixing all of our problems. They have to look generations ahead, and if they help us now, then our kids, 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 kids are going to be just like the Compendium's world. The Collective says that if they're going to be the authority, they're not going to be the authority that destroys originality. Instead, they're going to be cool. The Artists Cultural Collective is, of course, populated by former members of Are We Cool Yet? So far, the vote is two for yes and three for no. David and Primrose next end up at an art museum in West Africa, which from a distance resembled five columns of mossy stones stacked on top of one another. Each stone was in fact a large, isolated structure of thin metal and white ceramics built on top of one another with no practical means of moving between, aside from teleportation. Within each rounded complex was a single exhibit, and David says that 
He could have spent the whole day in the museum, if not his whole life. In one exhibit, he found a large aquarium full of lifeless, murky water, at the center of which was a statue of a man with his hands held aloft. After a while, he thought he saw children in the tank, floating with empty eyes, and as he rushed towards them to help, they popped their heads over the tank's edge and spat water at him. Primrose pointed out to him that he was standing in an area clearly marked as the Splash Zone. This would seem to be a version of SCP-1018. David then comes to a gallery of works by Robert Bobo Blythe, finding rows of paintings, carvings, and strange new media holograms depicting acts of obscene violence and perversion. The works depict things he'd never imagine in his worst or best dreams, but on his way out and seeing an aged portrait of the artist himself, David thinks that he seemed like such a happy fellow. Nothing shocked David as much as the final exhibit, though, located on the topmost stone of the museum. An amphitheater full of wooden steps and a wide glass ceiling contained only a single object at its center, protected only by a red velvet rope. When David and Primrose entered, a crowd of people were milling about it, and David found himself unable to blink for a moment, because he was looking at the statue, SCP-173. Despite David being able to instantly recognize it, there were some differences between this statue and the normal one. Its body possessed smooth, soapstone contours, and the browns and reds on its face were now vibrant and almost luminescent. Its body was bent back until its chest formed a smooth curve, and its head nearly touched the floor, and its arms were slouched, but a thousand hair-thin bands of metal curled and blossomed upwards, forming a great abstract cone that reached up to the ceiling. Primrose asks him if he thinks it's beautiful, and he says to ask him again when his stomach drops out of his throat. Primrose laughs and tells him that it goes unobserved for a single second every day, right at the stroke of midnight, at which point it turns itself into something completely new each day. David asks if they're worried it might hurt someone, and Primrose says that it might, if they were ever so disrespectful to lock it away and leave it unseen to wallow in its own filth. It's art, and it stops when it's seen because it wants to be seen. David guesses that it told them this itself, as they're somehow capable of talking to anomalies. Primrose responds that this is because of Pact 5, which consisted of combining 197 anomalies including a peculiar ham radio, the juices of a telepathic plant, and a pan-global anomalous radio frequency after they liberated several thousand abducted children from a Russian folk demon. She says that the statue isn't much for talking, and they figured it out the old-fashioned way, with trial, error, and patience, along with trusting that it couldn't just be a concrete killing machine. David says that he doesn't think he could ever have that kind of trust, not with what he's seen. The next vote comes from the absent party, who simply state that they warned us and we didn't listen, so they cannot redeem us. The absent party is simply a new name for the nobody group or person of interest, and they voted no, putting the vote at 2-4. to four. David and Primrose next traveled to Point Zero in Australia, although he couldn't have guessed it just by looking around, as they were inside of a glass dome the size of a small airport terminal. Outside, the area was lush and tropical, filled with trees stretching high above the dome, and David felt surreal at not being able to identify a single plant. The trees had bark layered like armored plates, and flower bulbs hung off thin fibers like a fishing pole and lure. He got so caught up in looking at the trees 
that he almost missed the massive reptile in front of him on the other side of the dome. And when he finally noticed, he panicked and turned to run instinctively. He tripped to the ground and scrambled back with a primal fear as he stared at it. SCP-682 There was a wall of shatterproof glass between them, but David knew that that wouldn't stop it, and 682 moved forward a step. Primrose stepped between the two and the reptile stopped. She tells 682 that David's only visiting, and it stared at him for a moment longer before turning away and disappearing into the tree line. Primrose apologizes to David, as she just had to see it for herself, since the killer instinct of the Immortagon is legendary. David assumes Immortagon to be their pet name for it, but she corrects him, saying that Immortagon is its genus, and that's what they call all of them. David then looks beyond to the clearings to the west, the hills to the east, and the rainforest in front of him, seeing hundreds of 682s. They were clearly the same creature as 682, but they looked healthy, with limbs coated in pale patterned scales and their bodies covered in thick shaggy coats. Primrose says that they're the second deadliest animal on the planet, as they were third until the compendium got rid of mosquitoes, and humans still get the top rank, of course. They're immortal by any means other than themselves, and she says that they work a bit like lions mixed with lobsters, as once one gets big, old, and slow enough, the rest of the pack devours it. She says it'd be disrespectful to call them a nuisance, but as long as they kept a wall between their lands and hers, they stayed out of sight. They knew the Immortagons were intelligent, and they had tried to reach out to them, but they killed every messenger. David then asks what anomaly voodoo miracle they performed to pull this off, and Primrose says that they didn't do anything, or at least nothing overt. One day they just stopped, as one of their researchers crashed into a nest of Immortagon, and they didn't kill him. He walked through a whole field of them during their mating season, and the rest assumed that that would be the end of Researcher Clef, but he got out unscathed. They don't know how they changed the Immortagon's thinking, but when they went back and asked them why, they said that we were no longer disgusting. David and Primrose proceeded to sit and look out over the jungles of Australia, seen countless other creatures, some foreign to David, and others terrifyingly familiar. Freakish raptor dogs ran in packs and barked at each other in arbitrary English phrases, SCP-939. A flock of birds larger than airplanes soared overhead, although Primrose told him to ignore them, SCP-1160. A procession of humans walked by, dressed in woven leaves and carved bones, and they were headed to the coast, holding a long eel skeleton above their heads. A young girl waved at David, and he waved back, but no matter how hard he tried, he cannot recall her face. David again says that Primrose has a strange, beautiful little world here, but Primrose says that that's the cat calling the kettle black, but he shouldn't repeat that, as it's a cat phrase, and only cats can use it. Her and David laugh, and she asks if he's hungry again, and he says that he is, in the way only near death could inspire. The next vote is from the workshop, who says that they're only here because they drew the short straw, as normally they keep their heads down and their hands busy, and stay out of politics and policy. The compendium sends them phenom, they send out packs, and they each stay out of each other's business. If the compendium wants to know what the workshop thinks of A6K, though, they think that we're wimps. When you're working with Prometheus's fire, sometimes you get burned. 
Sometimes you create a black hole when you stuff an improving machine inside of itself. Sometimes you create an army of cyborg super zombies. And sometimes you misplace the entire population of Massachusetts. But that doesn't mean you stop trying. You clean up the mess and get back to work, as the world doesn't get better otherwise. The workshop says that the partnership is mostly right, as A6K doesn't have anything that they don't have. The only resource that we can offer them is innovators, but all the real innovators are labeled as kooks, crackpots, and idiot savants. They say to let us figure out how to build a better spine, and until then, they can't work with us. The workshop union made up of the factory and Prometheus Labs, votes no, putting the vote at 2-5. to five. David and Primrose next go to Herman Fuller's Museum of the Extraordinary in Nashville, Tennessee. They had picked up some pizza in Detroit, apparently the best place to get pizza in the world, and David remarks on how fantastic it is despite being entirely grown in a lab. They had come to Nashville in a plastic shell that Primrose had called a transport pod, and David asks why they even have them if they can just teleport. She responds that they still need to move couches, and asking a chair to help move a couch would be deeply insensitive. They walk through a pavilion wrapped around a magnificent three-story stone fountain surrounded by lines of green moss and semi-circular buildings. David had been surprised when Primrose suggested seeing more museums, as it was exactly what he wanted to do. He carried an uncomfortable feeling with him, though, of jealousy, like walking through the home of a successful sibling and seeing all their great accomplishments and awards. David paused at a large avian skeleton in the Natural History Museum, with a large pot belly, a stork-like neck, and a terribly sharp beak. Past the ribs, David sees a strange mass of bones that almost look like the internals of a pocket watch. He asks Primrose if this is what happens to the phenom that don't fit into their little utopia, but Primrose says that this creature died on its own, and when a phenom doesn't fit here, they find somewhere else that it does usually another reality. David says that they just dump their problems on someone else then, and Primrose remarks that he's really dead set on painting them as the villains. The compendium finds solutions, as some light-sensitive phenom find themselves far happier on darker worlds, or more brutal creatures prefer harsher environments with less civilization. If they can't make it work here, they find a reality where they can fit. They continue on to the Museum of Technology, and David walks quickly past a number of exhibits, looking for what was missing. Deep in the basement, he found it. A large, rusting apparatus resembling a mix between a howitzer and a Tesla coil. It was clearly an engine of war, and David breathed a dark, satisfied sigh upon seeing it, asking Primrose why such a peaceful world would need machines like this. Primrose says that of course they've had war, and she never claimed that they hadn't. They've been mostly cold wars, but not entirely bloodless, as no empire has ever been built without at least some corpses at its foundation. She continues on, telling him that about a century ago, the Wanderers confronted the Foundation directly, as they'd found out about something that the Foundation considered a necessary evil. They considered it an unforgivable sin, but Primrose just calls it a hellish tragedy. They're referring to SCP-231-7 and Procedure 110 Montauk. This revelation brought these two powers to vicious odds, and they both formed allegiances. The Foundation banded with the Peacekeepers and built the workshop atop a cursed factory, 
while the Wanderers sided with the Red Hands and followers of the Serpent King. Both sides built stockpiles of terrible, impossible weapons, and that's apparently where Pact 5 came from, as you needed to be able to talk to Phenom to give them orders. Of course, the war never turned into a full-blown conflict, and eventually the stockpiles got so big that neither side could actually envision using the weapons. Instead, they started talking, bit by bit, offering each other concessions and suggestions, and new ways of tackling their shared problems. They then together turned their weapons towards their shared enemies, ancient, hateful immortals that neither side could vanquish on their own. They ended up freeing SCP-2317 together, and from there, they folded in many other groups, and the rest is history. Primrose says that, with that out of the way, David should try to enjoy himself. He says that he is, but it's hard to not be a little bit skeptical, given all the things he's seen. He tells her that she picked the perfect places to lighten his mood, though, as he loves museums, to which she responds that she knows. He asks her how she knows that, and she flinches slightly before responding that he's a scientist, of course he loves museums. They continue on, but David believes that he's starting to develop a fairly good hypothesis about Primrose. The next vote comes from the Apex, who start by saying that over a century ago, back in the Compendium's infancy, four men met in an open field. They shook hands as equals, although three of the men wore suits, while the fourth wore scat-stained overalls. This man's name was Wilson, and they asked him to help build a better world but he had only one request, a request that became Pact 15, the one in which enabled animals to speak. Because of this, the writer's 45th great nest mother was given the gift of higher thought, and they perch here today because of that man and the willingness of the compendium to open itself up to new minds, new ideas, and new perspectives. They shudder to imagine a world without such diversity of thought, and they remark that they wouldn't even be having this discussion without the works of the illustrious Dr. Primrose and her feline science reserve. What they're seeing here when they look through that tiny keyhole is a world once like theirs was, a planet dominated by a single species and a single perspective. They cannot stand as hypocrites, and they must reach out to us. The shared Apex Ascension, made up of Wilson's Wildlife Solutions, votes yes. David and Primrose next end up in Peru, having driven out to the coast, as cars had survived as a niche hobby. David had been allowed to drive the rented Porsche, and they sped along an old crumbling highway that snaked a cliff's edge as the evening grew late. They pulled off near an overlook, and as dusk settled in, David wondered if he was seeing things in the sea, wondering at why there were so many reflections. He then realized they weren't reflections, but instead, there was an entire city under the water, spanning past the horizon. David asks Primrose why she didn't tell him that they have underwater cities, but she says that they don't, as the Atlantic supercity belongs to the cephalopods. The cephalopods haven't spoken to them in about 50 years, as they were with the compendium for six weeks before they demanded agency, as they just didn't get along with the rest of Earthkind. Apparently, since their neurons extend throughout their entire bodies, and their appendages can think for themselves, they didn't need any more company. The compendium put them back into the ocean, and they built a super city from Alaska to New Zealand. 
David asks her if this concerns them, as they look pretty advanced, and they might decide to take over the surface, too. She responds that that's very A6K of him, and just because they're not talking doesn't mean they're hostile. If they rank the failures of Pact 15 in terms of hostility, the cephalopods are nothing compared to insects who nearly caused hell on Earth. They stand there in silence, looking at the view for a moment, before David says that Lisa, an old friend of his, would have enjoyed this. She was a marine biologist who died while studying an anomalous coral substance, probably SCP-835. Primrose says that she lost someone too once, which surprises David, as he figures that they would have had a handle on immortality by now. She says that, technically, yes, they know how to end death, and they even tried it for a little while before learning why it's essential for life to conclude. David asks what this person she lost was like, and she just says that they were a nerd. She then says that they should get inside as it's nearly nighttime, and David scoffs, asking if there are boogeymen coming. Primrose doesn't reply, so David assumes that there actually are boogeymen coming, but she says that they are all in Tasmania now. She just doesn't want him embarrassing her, as he doesn't know all of the customs here, and the night doesn't belong to them. David looks up to see grand, silverly clouds above them, which upon closer inspection are revealed to be millions of feathers fluttering together on threaded lines of white silk, bound in a great misshapen ball. In brief flashes, he sees titanic muscles dip in and out of the cloud, skinless and gray, inhuman in its segmentation, serving as some unimaginable piece of living machinery within the mass. These would seem to be massive versions of SCP-469, and Primrose says that it's all part of sharing the world, as the two head off for dinner. The next vote come from the Nocturnal, who state that we kept them out while the Compendium let them in. They will not turn away from us, and they vote yes. The Nocturnal, or the Nightland Covenant, are formed from SCP-1000, also known as Bigfoot, or the Children of the Night. The vote stands at four yes and five no. David and Primrose dine at a small ramen restaurant in Japan, which she claims has the best ramen in the world. They're served by a faceless creature floating in the air, appearing as though H.R. Geiger had designed a mermaid, with a tail ending in a wide spade, caked with flour and noodle bits. David remarks that the soup was sublime, although a bit heavy on the garlic. Halfway through the meal, Primrose jolted upwards as if she just had an epiphany, and she excused herself, darting out the door. A moment later, a new patron entered the restaurant, and David could see that he was very tall and very, very hairy. He tried not to stare at it, noting that its hair was very well kempt, and its flat face had three hairless circles where its mouth and eyes sat, glossy and black. It noticed him staring, and their eyes met, before it gave David a slow nod and returned to its noodles. David quickly put his bowl on the counter and fled the restaurant, finding Primrose waiting for him with a large bottle. She tells him that it's a very strong liqueur, and she's going to drink it, with David's help. She says her new plan is to blame his every misstep here on the fact that he's drunk, which will go far more smoothly if he actually is. She tells him to loosen up, submit to the local customs, trust in his guide, and have a drink with her. He complies. The next vote is from the Watchers, who tell the others to stop waxing philosophical for a moment and discuss transparency. 
There was a time where they were kept in the dark, while the others were swinging cods up on an ivory hill. Whatever exactly that means. But it didn't work. The Watchers have always seen them, even if their vision was a bit cloudy, as you can't hide the truth, and you can't keep people out. The Compendium are not gods, and A6K is essentially full of more aggressive versions of them, so why raise a red flag? The Watchers say that if you start drawing lines between them and A6K, you become gatekeepers, and they only need one of those. They're not above us. They don't deserve more than us, as they are us. The Watchers Forum, comprised of Parawatch and Gamers Against Weed, vote yes, tying the vote at 5 to 5. David and Primrose are well into their cups at this point, arguing about prime dimension theory and Humes. They had gone to sing karaoke at one point, and David vaguely recalls walking through the streets and seeing all manner of nightmarish and spectacular creatures. Flocks of shining ghostly figures literally swam overhead. An animate sand dune rolled between his legs, and there was a brief argument with a family of Italian tourists who for some reason sounded like chittering cicada. David and Primrose continued to argue scientific theories in a noisy bar, until a large, floating orb nearby says something in an unknown language, and David says that this guy gets it. Primrose responds that of course he'd agree with the orb. At some point later, they ended up back on the street with at least five new inebriated friends, although they lost them just as quickly which was fine with David as they were both small birds and extremely loud. David ended up losing Primrose at some point, but he was too nervous to ask for directions until he eventually found another human. He found a man in a black suit standing under a street lamp outside of a hospital. The man didn't give him directions, but he did offer him a cigarette, saying that he wouldn't usually do so, but... Since it's David's last day in this world, he'd say it counts. It seems David bumped into SCP-4999. David continued on, stumbling towards a standing electronic booth in the middle of the road with a holographic sign in the same shape as Primrose's brooch. As he approached, a second projection appeared of an androgynous human made of blue light, Projection greets him and asks how they can help, to which David says he's looking for a cat. The Projection asks if he'd like a listing for animal shelters or a connection to the feline community registry. David apologizes and says that he's not from around here, being from a place she called A6K. The Projection then asks if he'd like to be patched into the ongoing Compendium Judgment on A6K Unity, to which David hesitantly says yes, which ended up sobering him up quite a bit. The next vote is from the Unnamed, who state that there are not boundaries, there is only the path. Size and scale and circumstance are simply perceptual, prescriptive, subjective. They are not them. We are not us, no more than you are you, and we are we. A pinprick can be as wide as any road, so long as there is the means to travel. If it can, and it can, then it should, so it shall. There is no yes and no, there is no stop and go. There is only the path, and its splits always converge, eventually, entirely, ultimately. Two paths diverged in a wood, and we, we choose the path of bravery, for only a fool fights entropy. We will travel the path with them. From a city in a forest where all roads meet, here comes a vote of yes. 
As you might have guessed, the unnamed are made up of the fairies from SCP-4000, and regardless of what that all meant, they've tipped the vote over to yes. We meet up with David on a hilltop, somewhere, which is what he told the Everywhere Chair to take him. It was a hill in the US somewhere, near a small town, and he sat against a large oak tree for a while before Primrose eventually found him. He's completely sober by now, as he found a vending machine that asked him for a request, so he requested something to sober him up. Primrose says that that's good, as he has plenty of room for the rest of this bottle, but David just asks why he's here. She tries to change the subject, but he continues to insist she answer, until finally she shouts at him that she just wanted one more day with her best friend. They sit in silence for a moment before David realizes she means the David Caspian of this dimension. That's who she lost, as not every singularity on this world leads to nice places. David apologizes, but he still wants to know why he's here, specifically as to what the compendium is voting on. Primrose tells him that if they end up voting yes, there will be unity, as the compendium will come to our world and take over, as it did here. If they vote no, then the link between the two worlds becomes a problem, and they'll solve that problem by erasing our reality. With the stakes high, the next vote comes from the Peacekeepers, who say that there's been a lot of talk today about why each of the groups is here, and the Peacekeepers know why they're here. They're here because the Compendium needs a villain to blame all the hard decisions on, so that someone can say, take them out and shut it down, and others can go home that night and feel like they really tried to make the right decision, if only the Peacekeepers would let them. They're also the ones the Compendium sends in when diplomacy fails, to deal with the things that just want to kill you. The Peacekeepers tell them not to forget who sands down all the rough edges of their perfect world, when the pieces don't fit. With that said, they all want the same thing, a safe, stable world, and the Peacekeepers are willing to compromise their methods if others have a better option. Unfortunately, that's not how things work in A6K, as we only compromise when it's do or die, and we take shortcuts. A6K is a problem, and they should be treating it like they've treated so many other problem dimensions. The Global Peacekeeping Initiative, made up of course by the GOC, but also the UIU, vote no, tying the vote once again. Back on the hilltop, David is having a panic attack from this new information. He wonders if he can make it back to the rooftop where he arrived and somehow get back to his own reality to warn the others. He wonders if it would matter, or if they would believe him, and even if they did, could they stop the compendium from taking over? Maybe the SCP Foundation would strike first, and he's just deciding whether to destroy this reality or his own. He has no idea if he can trust people he's known for less than a day, but how can he trust his own reality, as he's never seen the O5 Council either? He turns to look at Primrose, who appeared as if she was holding in a very large breath, and then she burst into laughter. David says that there's no invasion, is there? And she continues to laugh, saying he's the most gullible man she's ever met. All unity means is reaching out to our reality and offering a discourse. They just like to call it unity because they like using fancy words, according to her. They would just want to talk, to start. And after a while, they would start bringing over humanitarian aid, and maybe some low-level technology. The moment we don't want them there, they'll leave. Either way, the decision would have to be unanimous. The Compendium does these votes whenever they stumble onto a new reality, and generally it's pretty simple on whether or not they want to offer unity. The answer is generally no, 
as it's potentially rather destabilizing due to disagreements. They also, of course, don't destroy realities if they vote no, as dimensional ruptures are the one phenom that they actually do contain by sealing it off, obscuring it, and monitoring it. Primrose isn't really even sure if the Compendium has the power to destroy a reality, but they have offered mercy to some worlds on rare occasions where everything has gone right to hell. Our reality isn't that far gone, and we're not a threat. We're just a serious grey area. David thinks to himself that it almost felt wrong for there not to be some grand calamity at the end of this adventure, and he just lays back in disbelief. Primrose tells him that she knows more about alternative realities than anyone else in this world, and certainly more than David, as she's been at it for about 60 years longer than him. She has no idea why their worlds are so different and yet so similar. She doesn't know if it's the hostile nature of our reality that makes our humans aggressive and distrustful, or if our aggression and distrust is making our reality hostile. It could be the humans, it could be circumstance, it could be that our reality is one big tempest in a teapot spiraled out of control. Are the people of this reality just fundamentally different, or are they the product of some sort of domino effect from thousands of years ago? She says their scientific field is a finicky ball of string, another catphrase. David asks how old she is exactly, but Primrose just smacks him in the face and heads towards the everywhere chair as the sun begins to rise. The final vote comes, of course, from the Foundation, who state that it's only fair it ends with them, as they started all this. They've seen worlds hollowed, fed up to a screaming, wrought iron moon. They've seen planets consumed by death, undeath, and repugnant life. They've seen it all horribly ever enfolding under a bleak red sun, but what has pained them the most was arriving at a beautiful, pristine world of happy people, just as all of the flowers bloomed. Referencing the world's gone beautiful 001 proposal. They don't want to wallow in the past, though, as they need to be the rational ones. A6K is the closest they've ever come to a true parallel reality. And while they may sit here and condemn us, the fact remains that they've never found anyone quite so much like them. The people of this reality rose from the dark, together, stronger for their hardships, and who's to say the people of A6K won't do the same? We could be their equals, or maybe even rise above them, but that triumph won't come from the compendium. It has to come from us. The Foundation votes no, ending the vote, but they add an addendum. They should seal the gate, but not entirely. They'll keep an eye on A6K and let us find them. When we do, they'll greet us without security, containment, or any protections. When we're ready to step into the light, they'll be there. The Compendium puts it to another vote. Back in Tokyo, on the rooftop where this started, David thanked the Everywhere Chair for the wonderful job it had done today. He stands next to Primrose as they watch the sun rise and look out over the city. He never asked how they grew ivy so large, but he decided not to, as it was spectacular and that was enough. Primrose says that she didn't think the vote would be that close as she knew the charity would be on board, and the Apex too, as her vote had to count for something. It was anyone's guess how the fairies would vote, as it always is, but the Nocturnal's vote was a real surprise, given what we did to them. David interrupts her and thanks her for the day, apologizing her for forcing her to let the cat out of the bag. He assumes that's a cat-only phrase, but she says he can use it. He says once again that they have a strange but very beautiful world here, but she says that it could be his world too, 
She can't bring him over once the singularity is sealed, but there's no real reason she has to send him back. She's sure she could come up with some excuse for the compendium, and if he's worried about the SCP Foundation, they can just send back a clone, or an android, or a lentil-based human-mimicking lifeform they found in Nepal that can only drool and stumble around, but she doubts our stupid reality will notice. The two fall into silence, and David tells her, It really was an incredible day. She asks if he's going to tell his bosses about this reality, but he assures her he won't. He'll just make something up for them, but he can think of someone who would appreciate all of this. Someone that's always up for a good story and can keep a secret. David knows it's his time to go, but before he does, he asks Primrose for one last thing. She grumbled, but agreed. David pets her head and then vanishes. I probably don't have to tell you how unique this SCP is in the grand scheme of the wiki. There's no twist, no calamitous ending, no invasion from other realities, and no hidden messages. This other reality, essentially a perfect utopia of the mundane and anomalous, discovered our reality through a tear and put it to a vote on whether to reach out and offer their assistance, or seal the dimensional tear away. Primrose, who had at some point in the past lost a dear friend of hers named David Caspian, decided to bring over the David Caspian of our reality so she could spend one last day with him before the tear potentially got sealed off. Afterwards, David returned and wrote up a document about his adventure, sending it to us, and describing it as the most incredible day. As far as the Foundation is concerned, the Singularity is a microscopic thing located in Tokyo, and they will continue to monitor it. If the addendum vote passed, it's not sealed off entirely, and it is possible that someday we'll find a way through it, and we'll discover the Compendium's reality. What happens from there is up in the air. But if you're optimistic, we could one day have a world just like Primrose's. The SCP universe is often one drowning in darkness and despair, so it's very rare to see such a pleasant and optimistic reality as this one. Much as David got to spend a day in that utopia, so did we get to spend a brief time reading about a world where everything turned out alright. <laughs>